as everyone's sort of navigating this public health crisis, uh, the, the coronavirus and COVID-19, it's also important to keep in mind that food insecurity is also a public health crisis and systemic racism is a public health crisis. This is Community Dialogues, a program for frank discussions about race, racism, and racial justice. I'm Rebecca Gutierrez. Our guest today is Jerome Nathaniel, the Director of Policy and Government Relations at City Harvest, an organization that provides food free of charge to over 400 emergency food services, such as pantries and food kitchens, throughout the five boroughs of New York. We spoke about the food insecurity crisis in the city and how and why it disproportionately affects communities of color. Jerome, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. So City Harvest, you know, helps those in New York who are food insecure. And I'd love to just start with some basics for people who may not know. Could you explain what food insecurity is and then how it affects uh, New York City? Yeah, sure. So uh, the nuts and bolts of food insecurity is that it means that an individual does not have enough income to consistently access an affordable and helpful diet for them and their families. And this term is used by the United States Department of Agriculture, as well as a lot of anti-poverty and anti-hunger groups to really measure uh, the landscape of hunger um, across our country and within certain areas or regions. And the reason why an individual might be food insecure can be for a whole host of reasons. Um, as I said, it's rooted in not having enough money to afford food. So just think about all those other expenses that people are trying to balance with their food, from housing to transportation, childcare. When you balance all of those things, um, that might lend itself to someone being food insecure. And how, how would you say that this affects New York and the city specifically? Is there like any particular neighborhoods or um, any particular aspects of living in the city that play into this? Yes, uh, definitely. So um, food insecurity, just bird's eye view, um, is really a, na a national measure of hunger as well as things like poverty. And that survey, uh, the way that they measure food insecurity is based off of this survey through the United States Department of Agriculture that's asking if an individual was um, afraid they wouldn't be able to afford enough food or they had to um, skip a meal or they didn't think that they would have enough money in the long term to be able to feed their family um, a, a certain amount of times. So when you think about the cost of living in New York City, you look on a hyper-local level and you think about the cost of housing in New York City, you think about transportation, childcare, and, and healthcare in New York City, um, that really lends itself to there being an even greater need in New York City which is why groups like City Harvest and many others kind of go a step beyond talking about food insecurity, which is this national term, to self-sufficiency standard, which is thinking about that real hyper-local cost of living in our city. So as far as the numbers goes, in New York City, when we're talking about people facing food insecurity, it's currently um, over 1.5 million, um, which is much higher than it was prior to uh, the uh, current health crisis. And then when we look at that other term I talked about, uh, which is the self-sufficiency standard, looking at all those local, hyper-local costs, that's uh, well over 2.5 million New Yorkers that are actually in need. And that's not taking into account um, some of the um, tax that um, the current public health crisis or uh, COVID-19 has put on many families' um, ability to, to feed their households. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to go back to something you said, you know, with 
the pandemic, like millions of families have lost their jobs, lost their housing. Um, how, how has this really affected the food shortage crisis here in New York? Yeah, so in many ways, when we're talking about food insecurity, it's inextricably linked to unemployment and inextricably linked to poverty projections. So while unemployment was on a downward trend since the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, so was food insecurity. Food insecurity was downward trending, however, very slowly, and there still was a great need. So I don't want to understate that there was still well over a million people facing hunger even after the Great Recession and when there was you know, quote unquote, record unemployment. Um, so we had a situation in 2018 where food insecurity uh, was going almost as, as low, and I use that word loosely, but uh, hovering around a million people. And now it skyrocketed up to over 1.5 million. So that's over a 40% increase for um, all New Yorkers and over a 60% increase for children. And a lot of that is based off of unemployment projections and, and unemployment claims. Uh, we know at the, height of at the height of the pandemic, there were um, as many as 20% of New Yorkers facing uh, unemployment, and there's over 2 million New Yorkers that filed initial unemployment claims. So unfortunately, food insecurity follows that trend, and, uh, and I can unpack it even more. It also follows the trend of who, which communities, which industries are facing more unemployment such as the, the food service and accommodation industry and the individuals that occupy those jobs, quite often Black, Latinx, Asian and Indigenous communities are also the same communities that are facing high food insecurity rates. Yeah, so I, I also wanted to ask about that. You know, there is a huge gap between the rates of food insecurity for people of color versus for white families. You know, I read a study that said Black and Latinx families are two times more likely to deal with food insecurity than uh, their white counterparts. Why do you think that gap persists? What are some of, what are some of the reasons? Uh, I think that the very quick answer, quick but complex, is uh, a history of systemic racism that has led to that point. And then when we look at a, a more current events micro level, um, as I said, where we're talking about employment, uh, think about access to jobs for certain communities and certain requirements for certain uh, for those certain jobs. You've got to think about who's facing higher rates of rent burden because um, when we're talking about food insecurity, you have to also talk about all those other expenses. And unfortunately, when someone's trying to afford housing or childcare and healthcare, which are viewed as these fixed costs, then um, your food budget is viewed as something elastic. Um, so that's going to lend itself to higher food insecurity rates for those same communities. And you also look at, as I talked about unemployment with the food service industry, those jobs tend to be occupied by um, communities of color. So while those jobs are being hit the hardest in terms of unemployment, um, they're also uh, leading to more uh, black and brown communities um, having to turn to other means to be able to access food for their family. Just based on that, you know, it's obvious that food insecurity is really embedded into our systems of structural racism, but I just feel like this element is often left out of the conversation, like the overlaps between food and race. Why do you think this is, that it's often kind of left out of that conversation of dismantling racist systems? Um, I, I think that some of it is because racist systems are very complex and there's a lot of different aspects of it in terms of the 
political fight or struggle for racial justice. So when it's, it's almost like the conversation when I was talking about um, someone's budget, where the first thing they cut is their food, and then that may allow them to uh, buckle down and focus on some of those fixed costs like housing. The same could be said for the fight against racial justice. Uh, the first thing that might come to someone's mind that's facing those things and myself as uh, a, a black man is that you're taking the weight of trying to take on um, police tensions and tensions in the uh, criminal justice system. You're talking about uh, housing justice and education. So then when you're looking at those very big complex things that are felt, then um, food insecurity might be viewed as something that's um, peripheral or it's viewed as something that traditionally um, anti-hunger organizations or other nonprofits have been able to provide food to make sure someone's able to eat tonight. So it's almost like, okay, you can eat tonight, we can make sure people are fed through these emergency services. And in turn, they have more time and energy to be able to focus on these other systemic issues. And that's not to say that there isn't an element of food insecurity that's interwoven into those systems of racism but just sort of explaining bird's eye where folks might almost view hunger as something that so over here that can be addressed through these other sort of emergency responses. And I think looking at it differently would really do, would have to lend itself to a lot of reprogramming, not just as institutions or as a nation, but as a species, because I say this all the time, food banking goes back to antiquity. It's it's older than the Bible, the concept of gleaning. Uh, so it, it would really be reprogramming our relationship to how do we address scarcity by making sure that we're um, not being wasteful. Right, and how do, I mean, I know this is a big question, but how do you think we do that? Like, what are some proposed solutions to this crisis? I know that, you know, City Harvest is definitely one outlet, but what, what, what else is there that you guys do or that's just out there in the, in the field of dealing with the hunger crisis? Yeah, I think it's it's a few things. One is definitely intersectionality. Like I said, City Harvest, we have over 400 different emergency food programs, pantries, soup kitchens, and shelters. And each of those 400 programs are doing the direct service to the 1.5 million New Yorkers, whereas City Harvest is generally viewed as the indirect service. We're making sure that those programs are able to have the food to provide for their people. They have those direct relationships with the community. They know the community. They're from the community. So they can add that extra layer and while we're providing that food so that they're being able to feed their families and eat tonight, those programs, those program directors know that person, knows their children, know the school that that person goes to, and they're able to do that extra level of advocacy. And, you know, myself as the director of policy and government relations, there's opportunities in that agency network to advocate for things like um, getting rid of the public charge rule, which was essentially a wealth test that was targeting um, uh, immigrant communities and trying to scare them away from participating in uh, anti-poverty programs. And it disproportionately was targeting uh, black and brown immigrant communities. So uh, while we're this huge citywide organization, we at least had the resources to be able to do outreach and work with the mayor's office at Immigrant Affairs and be at the pantries that were servicing immigrant communities to make sure that they knew exactly what was going on with the public charge and who they could call to help. So a lot of it is just really working with our agency network or our pantry network that's directly built into these communities 
uh, to figure out what do they need in their particular neighborhood with their particular demographic. Yeah, and what about something like nutrition education? How could that play into helping solve this crisis as well? Yeah, so we, we do have a culinary educations team and uh, they're currently virtual. So it's a, it's a whole new world for all of us, of course. Uh, but traditionally, our culinary education team was going out there to pantry programs. We we're going out there to, to schools as well and providing these six to eight week courses where we were um, helping people uh, shop for and prepare food on a budget, being able to navigate grocery aisles and, and pick up on tips like reading the unit price, uh, for instance, to figure out what's the better deal, reading the nutrition label. And in terms of doing that through a, an equity lens, we were, um, and we currently are still trying to make sure that we're doing recipes that are uh, culturally sensitive, that speak to the people that are participating in the course, because um, I, even talking about myself, I'm born and raised from East New York, three generations, and I never had kale until I started working at a food bank in upstate New York. And I was like, oh, this isn't too bad. I've never saw it. I only knew collards. So it's, you know, knowing your audience and, and not going to certain communities and assuming and just asking them and hearing from them. And then that drives the culinary education to really have a curriculum that speaks to the people that are participating. Jerome, thank you so much. And I'd love to just end with anything that you might want to add that I may have missed um, about this topic. Um, yeah, I would just add that as everyone's sort of navigating this public health crisis, uh, the, the coronavirus and COVID-19, it's also important to keep in mind that food insecurity is also a public health crisis and systemic racism is a public health crisis. And food insecurity is a public health crisis that has uh, persisted before COVID-19. As I said, it was over a million people facing it. And unfortunately, now there's 1.5 million and it's only exacerbated the need for those communities that were facing hunger and brought in new communities into that space. And as we're seeing with the second wave, we, when we think there's like the end of the tunnel, for the most part, even when COVID-19 rates were going up and down, food insecurity was always steadily going up since the start of this pandemic because unemployment continues to steadily go up over the course of this pandemic. So there's a long fight ahead. Um, it's not going to be solved overnight. The Great Recession took many, many, many years. Uh, we were just going on our downward trend um, in 2018. So there's going to be a lot of work to be done. Well, Jerome, uh, thank you so much for, for joining me today. I, I really do appreciate it. This has been really great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm glad I was able to, to share with folks. That was Jerome Nathaniel, Director of Policy and Government Relations at City Harvest, an organization that assists New Yorkers dealing with the effects of the hunger crisis. This has been Community Dialogues. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. I'm Rebecca Gutierrez. Thank you for listening.